Hello and welcome to the Remaining Sane, Finding Peace in Our Chaos podcast, a podcast about both theology and police work. I'm your host, Will, and in today's episode, I interview famed apologist and former LAPD detective, Jay Warner Wallace. Mr. Wallace, how are you today? Doing well, and you know what? I'm so glad we're doing this because... um, we have a website that we also do called the the, uh, the Thin Blue Life, and I want to get this podcast. When we get done with it, I'm going to post it there because I want people to be exposed to all the different. It's, it's what a great combination, right? You, you think, oh, are we the only ones out there that are talking about police work through a Christian lens? I, hmm. you kind of feel it can feel like you're alone almost out there doing that, and it's nice to see that somebody who's an entirely different generation than me is actually taking the lead and doing this. So I want to congratulate you for that, and uh, yeah, for sure, we'll be posting this there as well. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I kind of realized, I think I was telling, talking to you about this police work does have some Christian elements behind it, right? Like there, mm-hmm. there, there is an overarching sense of, of doing good and protecting the public that are inherently Christian values. Um, Absolutely. And so yep. you, and you can derive those, those values, like, in a total vacuum, right? The uh, classic example of finding quote unquote goodness um, from a total vacuum that doesn't have Christ is Confucius. But stepping away from that, you do find the sense of having you know, guardians or soldiers in, in different societies. But the but looking at the work that you do through a Christological lens. Um, I think it's very important. I think that it, it helps keep you, I'll tell this podcast, it helps you remain sane in your work so that you don't yep. become just jaded and nihilistic. Um, and these are things we've talked about before with different people that only by hanging on to Christ that are we able to keep ourselves away from really going down these dark paths. Well, and I and I still struggle with that, even though I do have my identity in Christ. I I, I still... I mean, you can say you have your identity in Christ, but I wonder sometimes when my life just gives it away because we, we, there's nothing, when you do this job, which I did for, you know, 25 plus years, you end up, um, wearing that superhero uniform every day. And it does become an important part of your identity, whether you like it or not. And you're proud of it. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's one of the harder work related identities for men and women to, take off to to um to, to transition from so if, you, if you're not feeling this the, the tug of war of your identity now on the job you will when you retire trust me <laughs> oh well no i'm clear on that no we uh it it definitely is a an extremely captivating job because um, i mean state law here says that you're a police officer 24 7 and so and you, you can't take that away from you right you know the the, the reality is that if you police in the community that you live in, then you look at that community you inherently through a police officer's lens, even when you're off. No. Well, as a matter of fact, that when, and what it comes down to, the thing that's the most burdensome and why I think it creates the kind of trauma it creates for us or the kind of stress it creates for us is that it, the, the cop in the room is probably the person who is at the bottom or the foundation of who's responsible for what happens in that room. 
So when a cop responds to a call, well, who's responsible for how this goes? It, the cop is. And and this means that there's if you're in a, a state in, in the United States where you have this 24-7 responsibility, like you don't, you don't have an option of just sitting by and watching a crime and being a good – if you're required to act like a cop 24-7, that means that you never – imagine a place in your life where you never get to, to allow the responsibility to belong to somebody else. And if you're always responsible for how this thing turns out, then it's that burden is just because responsibility comes with it, the disappointment if it doesn't turn out well. That's why sometimes when you're with your wife and you think, well, I've got the headship in my relationship. This is not a, a that doesn't mean I have power. That means I bear the responsibility because the person who makes the decision is responsible, therefore, for how that turns out. And to be honest, there's lots of days when I don't want that responsibility. Mm -hmm. I'd much rather I not be in charge. I might not be the head of this decision because it's just that, but what we are called to do as men is to take that responsibility and shoulder it as a gift to our wives, the same way we shoulder the responsibility as cops as a gift to our community. Yeah. But if you can't ever take that off, that, that will eventually wear you out. You know, once again, they're, and there are certain practices that you can do to recenter yourself. You know, we've right. talked about prayer. We've talked about, um, you know, trying to get away from, from this for a little bit. In fact, our, our I had a, a, um, a guest a couple of weeks ago mentioned that one of the most efficacious things she did, uh, was they went on like this three day wind shaped marriage retreat. And so my wife and I, you know, we're going to do one of those just to get away from this for a little bit. Cause you know, some, sometimes it's good that people don't know what you do. Right. And so then, yes. So that it, because you don't want to be talking about this 24 seven. So it's, it's good to find stuff that's outside of this. That's why well, the I've problem got a couple you, of hobbies. Go ahead. And you know, the problem with this, right? Cause if this is something that we both struggle with, even in two different generations is that, that, that this, what we do as cops is, there's no one else who doesn't has this responsibility. I always put it this way. We are the one necessary profession upon which every other profession is contingent. So when they formed the state of Tennessee, I guarantee you one of the first things they did was establish the county sheriffs, mm -hmm. whatever they called them there. And here in California, same thing. First thing that you'll see, all the county sheriff's departments have the exact same start date. They're the state at which the state was actually turned into a state. All those territories then had formal uh, sheriff's departments because we are the one necessary profession. You cannot do uh, medicine in a city safely unless you have order that is assured by a sheriff. You can have volunteer firemen, but you got to have a paid sheriff in town, and that's the first thing you put in place. And the problem with that, that means that the buck stops with us. No. And there are just times when you just need it to stop with somebody else. Like you can't, it can't, you can't bear that responsibility. And what it also means is this is not does not put us at a place of privilege. This puts us at a place where you know people stand on foundations and they pee on foundations and they spit on foundations and they dump their trash on foundations. You don't pay attention to your foundation until it cracks. Yeah. You're walking on that sidewalk, you don't even care. You draw on it, you spit on it, you don't care about it. you're standing on it. And foundations are treated that way. And we've been treated that way. And we have to understand that, yep, we're we are blessed. We are blessed that we get to be part of the one necessary profession we are cursed because we are part of the one necessary profession so it's a it's a double-edged sword and that's why i think it's noble what we do is noble especially now when 
nobody cares for us. I mean, that's when it's even the most noble. When you, are you willing to do this? Were you only willing to do it when you could be the hero? Or are you willing to do it when people think you're the villain? Yeah, I, I joined. I went through the police academy. I got hired right before uh, George Floyd happened. And so right. I went through the police academy while George Floyd and all that was going on. I got asked so many times, you know, why are you doing this? Why would you ever jump into this right now? But I think that I, I, I genuinely believe that this era of, of turmoil and strife that's, that's going on now is forming some of the best police officers that we're ever going to have because, you know, the, the fire is going to, as iron sharpens iron, you're, you're going to have some of the, a lot of the wisdom come down from the elder generations, but also you know, some of the problems that we, we face are new and they're unique. Mm-hmm. You know, what narcotics detective 10 years ago was dealing with Bitcoin. And now that's all, or that's, that's 80% of what a lot of the online drug transactions that are going on. Now people are using Bitcoin. You, how are you going to chase, trace Bitcoin through the dark web? And I, I don't know the first thing about that. All right. <laughs> so, the, but that's a, there, there's all kinds of unique struggles that you know this world is brings upon, and you know we we can't just say, oh, I'm not going to deal with that. I mean, we have to deal with that. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think yeah. that um, it, it's it, what's what's tragic about it is I hope you're right also that it's going to iron sharpens iron. It's going to build the best. Here's here's where I'm, here's where my concern is. We have to decide as a culture: do we want police to continue to be proactive? Um, you know, we're not, we're not, there are patrol, we have a division in our law enforcement agencies, unlike the fire department, which is called patrol. And those are the largest percentage of, uh, have been classically the largest percent, the largest division in any patrol in any uh, law enforcement agency is the patrol division. And that's of course true for us too. And those guys are not out there just to handle calls. They could handle that from the station. They're out there patrolling to do what? What do you want us to do? Do you want us to really suppress crime or stop crime? Because there's no one driving around looking to see if uh, this guy looks like a fire starter. That doesn't happen in the fire department. It only happens on the patrol side. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a very difficult job, a difficult position to put us in. And what I'm seeing in Los Angeles County anyway is a, a hesitancy, especially we are in a county where in which the DA is actually coming after police officers. And so now we're at a point where we're wondering, okay, uh, given a choice, wouldn't it be wiser to be the last guy to arrive? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Wouldn't it be wiser to do nothing proactively? Why would I want to do anything that might just open up a case against me? Now, this is where I, I fear this because that is our job. That's why we have to be proactive. And if we're not, what happens is, is that I do believe in that broken window syndrome. You stop, uh, you stop making your bed, and before long, you stop cleaning your bathroom, and before long, the house is a mess because it's that one. If you let it go, if you don't button this thing up, um, it, we do have a tendency to let things go. And I yeah. think what happens is George Floyd changes the industry in a heartbeat. That 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 death that that case changed our industry in a heartbeat. But but young officers who now refuse to do their job, because by the way, they're going to pay you the same whether you talk, make five stops today or make none. So so that takes about ten years to see the impact on culture. It doesn't happen immediately. And then once it's it's happened, it's hard to reverse. Yeah. So I, I want to be optimistic. I think the only way out is what your podcast is all about. The only way out is to stay in with a new worldview, is to stay in with not relying on yourself, the, all the power you can muster, 
but instead to be um, your identity in Christ, to be driven by the Spirit of God. And that yeah. changes things. Yeah. Well, speaking about that, I have done a little bit of research as to your story, but I was wondering if you could tell us, you know, what, I guess, how you found God, how you became interested in God, while all that. If you could just give the, a brief background. Well, I, I was not raised in a Christian environment. My dad was a cop, and he's not a believer. And he was there for about 28 years before I came on. He he we, he retired the day I came out of the academy. So I was bummed. I didn't get a chance to uh, work with him. Uh, my son had about a two-year overlap with me. So we've been there for three generations, the same name. Uh, I was about 35. My son, Jimmy, who's been on the job now about 12 years, he was about seven or eight when I first started looking at Christianity. I was 35 and was working as an investigator. I was already a senior investigator in my agency. And I had opened a number it kind of looked at a number of different kinds of cases um, a lot of the stuff we were doing was crimes person stuff like robbery stuff did a couple of homicides we got pulled in on i was working on a surveillance team and i wasn't interested in christianity at all didn't know anybody the few christians i knew i didn't really have a lot of respect for if i'm honest with you and i would i was openly host not host i don't yeah I would mock christians quite a bit and a lot of the people who would take to jail would tell us they were christians so they were easy to mock so, you know, these people would be wearing a cross on their neck while they're going to jail, slinging dope or whatever they were doing. Or they just tell us, you know, I got saved at this big event and now I'm taking them to jail for a bank robbery. And I'm thinking, really? So I didn't have a lot of respect for them. Um, but my wife, um, and I think as I look back at this, it was probably because we had, when we were in a different city, we had put our kids in a daycare or not daycare, but preschool. And the preschool was a Christian preschool. And then, you know, now they were, in, they were in school, regular school, and um, they were no longer in that preschool. And then Susie, she always kind of wondered, should we raise our kids? I think she was just wanting to continue that experience, probably. Mm -hmm. I need to ask her about that. But anyway, so we um, we ended up, uh, she was safe like for years, three, two or three years while we were living in this neighborhood. Uh, let's go to church. Let's, let's try a local church. And I had a buddy who I was working with. To be honest, I didn't think much of him. He he was always asking, hey, um, you should go to church with me. And he had a big church here he was attending. Well, so finally, one, night, one Saturday, I said, okay, if you want to go tomorrow, I mean, I'm happy to go as a non-believer because my dad, I didn't tell her that, but my dad's a non-believer and he's happy to go to church. He doesn't think it's, he thinks it's, what's what's the downside? It's not true, but it, it does, it is helpful in raising kids. So I, I would say I would be willing to go the same same way. But the pastor, this was a big seeker-sensitive back in those days. They call these big seeker-sensitive churches. And the one thing about it was— I don't know what that means. Okay, a seeker-sensitive church basically— are you, are you just being obnoxious, or do you no, not know No, I'm being serious. I've never heard the term seeker-sensitive. Seeker are you kidding me? I, I'm you, dead serious. Listen, everyone jokes I'm 12 years old in my department, so I'm— Well, you, you know what? My yeah. son's the same way because he looks like he's younger than his age. You know, he's 35 and looks like he's 22. Yeah. But uh, so anyway— um, but yeah, uh, secret sensitive churches are basically just the idea was that the church is designed almost like an outreach event every Sunday where you are more sensitive to the seekers in the room than you are to the to the, to the believers in the room. Okay. And and I think there's some problems with that approach probably, but but uh, for me as a seek and I wasn't seeking, I was just uh, uh, in the room because of my wife. I I think probably Susie was more for sure she was more open to this than I would have been. So maybe she's the secret they were trying to reach. But no. this this pastor looked pretty ordinary, and he was wearing like um, looked like like a neighbor. He could have been my neighbor, 
and he threw out Jesus. Uh, you know, he said a bunch of stuff, but he was very cloaked and skilled in the way he said it. So it was not offensive to somebody like me. Yeah. No, no Christianese, you know, no heavy language. He wasn't preaching the gospel like a Baptist. He uh, basically said that Jesus was a smart man, the smartest man who had ever, the most important, smartest man who had ever lived in history. And I thought, hmm. That's that, pretty that, bold. That's bold. I thought actually at the time, this guy's an idiot. But but it was gutsy. And um, I was always interested, like I'm even interested in in fictional characters who could say wise things. You know, I've got another book coming out next year, and this in that book, I do, I think, a couple places, quote, movie characters who say this wise thing that reveals some well-known aspect of human nature. So it's a it's a it's a truism, but it's coming from fiction. It's from the mind of the author. So I'm thinking, who cares if Jesus is fiction? Whoever authored this fiction called Jesus might have some wisdom. So I bought a Bible. As a matter of fact, I'm going to – I'm doing this podcast with you. I'm in the room. Hang on a second. I'm going to unplug for just one second. I'm going to get this Bible out. Okay. No one can see this but you and me, but I want you to see it. Okay, I'm coming back to my my uh, podcast uh, station here. You're good. And uh, this is the Bible I bought. It's just a $6, $7 you Bible, I keep it in this leather thing here, so you can see it. It's just a piece of junk um, pew Bible, and uh, I put tabs in it because I started doing a forensic statement analysis through some of these claims. Now I knew I'd do forensic statement analysis because I had been working investigations for enough time, and I so do a bunch of. of I've got classes. a decent amount of people who are not police officers who listen to this. Okay, so what? forensic statement analysis yeah. <laughs> is, is basically you just take a written statement before you do the interview with your suspect. You have them write a statement on a piece of paper that has X number of lines. Usually it's got 12 on each side, and you're basically going to say, or if you have 12 in the front or 24 lines in the front, you're going to basically say, hey, um, uh, usually it's 12, and you'll say, hey, I want you to write down everything you did yesterday from the time you got up to the time you went to bed. Yesterday is the day of the crime. And then he will write down all this, and you're going to examine the statement first before you do the interview because it's going to give you insight into what you want to interview. And that statement you're examining for deception indicators, like I can usually tell where he's lying and what time of the day he's lying in. So and you're looking at compression of time and expansion of time and use of pronouns, use of optional words, tenses, all kinds of pronouns, you know, all this stuff you look at in forensic statement analysis, which I've written about in some of my books. Mm -hmm. And I first did it on the Gospel of Mark, and you use different colors to look at time expansion or time compression or use of pronouns. And it looks kind of like everyone's Bible, I guess, but for me, it was all about the, the forensic statement stuff. I was looking at it to see if there was evidence in Mark's Gospel for Peter as a source, because ancient sources tell us, Papias, for example, says that Mark is writing down Peter's testimony mm -hmm. as he's sitting at the feet of Peter in Rome. Well, if that's the case, I should see some evidence of that in the account. And so I started to look at it forensically. That's what started this whole thing for me was just examining the Gospels as eyewitness accounts. And so that's what I eventually convinced me that this was true. And then I ended up writing this the, the first book, which was Cold Case Christianity, which now is in its 10th year. And it has kind of become like um, this people read it. So that's great. Yeah, and I hope it's helpful to some yeah. people. Yeah. So I hope it's helpful. But But that, you know, it wasn't like I was trying to. I had a book in mind, you know, yeah. I, I, I did this process. I determined that the gospels were reliable. I was stuck with the person of Jesus. And that is so helpful for us. Look, we're all, those of us who do listen to this, who are cops or case makers, by our very nature, we are case makers. If you're working patrol, 
you see that car go by, you're thinking to yourself, hmm, do I have probable cause for the stop on this? What are you doing? You're making a case in your head. That case will eventually end up on paper. Then you make the stop and you're talking to this guy and you're thinking, do I have probable cause to get in this car? You're making an additional case, which is also going to end up on paper. You eventually take the guy to jail. What's my reason to take him to jail? You're making a case in your head. You get tell to the DA. Got to make that case to the DA. The DA yep. eventually goes to trial. You're making the case to a jury. We are case makers from the moment we stop somebody all the way through trial. And that's who I was, case maker. Yep. So I needed to know, is there a case here? And once I dis discovered there was, well, that changed everything for me. I became fast obsessed, obsessed. Because you know, Lewis, C.S. Lewis once said this. He said, "You know, if Christianity is not true, it's of no importance. If it is true, it's of critical, infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important." Yep. And that's that the way true. I looked at it. So I was all in or all out. And the people who knew me and saw this transformation, they said, "Oh, you are going to end up being a pastor." I just know it because <laughs> I was all out. I was very openly ridiculed to Christians. Uh, thought the entire thing was stupid. And said it a lot. And so when people saw this change, they're like, oh, you're an extremist in one direction or the other. And now that that was true. I eventually did become a pastor. No. <laughs> so well, it, well, currently you're you're also a professor. Is that correct? You're at. Yeah. At so I'm, I, 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 I'm the kind of person that turns corners. And when I turn a corner, I don't usually go back. Yeah. <laughs> but I did. You know, I worked as a, as a cop for years and as a cold case detective. And I still have a couple of open cases. Not my choice. They just don't get, they don't solve as quickly as you might like. So for example, I've got two that I've been out of the agency for 10 years. They, I don't think they've moved maybe five feet on those cases because it, you're waiting for breaks. You're waiting for something to change. You've kind of exhausted every lead you have, but something does end up changing and you get a phone call and off to the races, here you go again. So those kinds of cases stay open for a long time. And so I do have cases I probably am going to get sucked back into. But in the meantime, I'm writing about Jesus. And I pastored for a number of years by vocationally, right? While I was working as a detective, I would volunteer as a pastor. And trust me, if you can, you'll be willing to volunteer 30 hours, people will take your 30 hours. So, yep. I, you know, that's that's where I ended up. And, and I ended up uh, leading a church at Southern Baptist Church Plant, which I had for five or six years. And then I wrote Cold Case, and it changed everything for us. And now we're doing this, but it's a season. And, and like you and I were talking about earlier, that the most important thing I can say is that if you're listening to this and you're a cop, at some point you're going to encounter trauma. Something's going to traumatize you. Or when I say trauma, I don't want to, like, if you're a cop of my age, you're like going, really rub some dirt in it. You know, like we all experience these things. We don't get shook up over them. We're men. But the reality of it is we do get shaken up over them. And, and we just, we get, we're shaken in a different way. And and we maybe have a different kind of a response to that, not necessarily a good response. Mm -hmm. Often the kind of response we have is more destructive because we're eating it, eating our stress, eating our you know our 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 despair, eating our our doubts. We're not expressing them in some way. Maybe yep. the, the younger generations do a better job of that, actually. But you're going to encounter some form of something that sh is a gut punch that shakes you. And when that happens, and you experience that gut punch. You have to figure out how to survive it. And one thing I've noticed about trauma, and I do a lot of this work now with officers, is that the definition of trauma is simply an event that shatters your previous, your prior perception of the world and yourself. So you hold a view of the world. Like tactically sound officers don't get injured. Don't get ambushed. And then suddenly you get ambushed. And now your view of like, well, if I do things a certain way, I, this shouldn't happen to me. And it happens anyway. 
And then you start what it does. It starts to immediately impact the way you see yourself. Well, maybe I'm not a tactically sound officer. I always thought of myself that way. And so now you're having not only a challenge to your life experience, you're having a challenge to your identity. And what happens there is it drops you to your knees. And if you stay dropped at your knees and don't perform well anymore, we call that post-traumatic stress. Like you're now performing at a level and you're not flourishing the way you used to. You're now arguing with your wife more. Your whole life is starting to become unraveled. Now, if we can help you and you return to the level of, of performance you were at before the event, we call that resiliency. But when the officers come to me now, we, we are, we've been volunteering as the lead chaplains at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association uh, Marriage Resiliency Retreat. Now we're in our fifth year. And what I've learned is, is that I want more for the officers who come up there than to get them back to resiliency. I want them now to, to perform at a level that's even higher than they performed at before mm -hmm. the traumatic event. And that is called post-traumatic growth. And how do you get there? Well, the secular studies have already identified what, what, what works and what doesn't work. And what they've identified as working is something that secularists call meaning-making. Meaning-making. I call it meaning-finding. Because you cannot, if, what they're trying to do is figure out where does this trauma fit in the overarching story of your life? Like what good could come out of it if you saw it and how it fits into the the structure of your life. Well, nothing does a better job of this than the Christian worldview, but you cannot make that up. I mean, I could say I could make some meaning, just like invent some purpose for my life and then try to figure out how this fits in that purpose. But if there is an objective transcendent meaning to life, well, then you can't make that up. You got to find it. You got to figure out what is the meaning of life. And that's what happens here with us as officers is that this is why identity is so important. Almost every traumatic event that you experience in your life will have some impact on how you see yourself, your identity. So you want to start to pick identities that don't change because every change in identity usually accompanies some form of trauma or some form of struggle or challenge. And that's why an identity in a transcendent worldview is you're far more likely to to suffer through challenges without suffering because you're you're going to end up your your identity is never I'm a, I'm in Christ and no matter what happens to me tomorrow I'm still in Christ. Now, what you can do and you've seen this too probably is that if you have a false view of who God is, you can still struggle. So for example, I've known Christians who are like, "Oh, if I'm an obedient Christian who does all this, checks all the boxes, and I'm doing all my spiritual disciplines, and I go to church regular, and I volunteer. Obedient Christians are blessed by God. If that's your view of God, and then suddenly something happens to you, well, now your worldview has been shattered. And you might think, well, am I, not, am I not an obedient Christian? Or is God not good? If your worldview is a good God blesses obedient Christians, then you're like in the book of Job, where Job is asking why are you doing this to me, God? And his friends were going, well, you must not be as good a Christian or a good believer as you thought you were. There's the problem. So I think for a lot of us in this profession, we're trying to figure out like, where is our identity? And then how do we lock, lock onto that and, and do our jobs with that identity? Um, well, I've got multiple notes on what you just said. Um, the first one being that responding to trauma is the very beginning. A lot of police officers, especially the older generation you said, um, has is problem quote unquote with you know i mean to shake it off right you know that that shouldn't bother you well that that's one in one of the previous episodes uh with dr justin barnard 
uh, we talked about nihilism. We went all up and down nihilism. And um, he said that one of the responses to nihilism that people have given that's not a Christian understanding of the world is this understanding of the Stoics, Stoicism. And basically what, what that is, is that life is rough. You should deal with it. Well, the, the, the great criticism of that is that there are some things in life that are so rough that they should affect you. And it is wrong if they don't affect you. And so when I was, I want to say about a year, year and some change into being a police officer, very, very long story short, um, I had somebody out of the blue, out of nowhere. I, I've been, he had told me that he was a victim in a pretty heinous crime out of completely nowhere, jump and try to take my gun from me. I had to, you know, recalibrate. I had, I had to get that guy in custody. But after that, I was, I, I was thinking, you know, what, what did I do wrong? <laughs> how, how am I supposed to walk away from this? Cause now I can't, th this guy said that he had been a victim of a pretty, pretty awful sexual. So well, full disclosure, it was rape. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then, you know, how, how am I supposed to walk away from this? I can't even trust a rape suspect to not, not assault me. Right. Um, a rape victim, you're saying. Yeah, right? a rape victim. Yeah, right, right, right. Not assault me. Yeah, yeah. I can't just transpose that on everybody because not everybody's out here to assault you. Right. Um, nor can I say that, you know, was I being a, a quote unquote bad cop? You know, what what reasonable person expects that to, to happen? But that did do a little bit of recalibrating. And so now, even though I may be on calls and it's nothing going on, I'm really conscious about my space because something like that has happened to me before. That's right. And if someone questions me about it, I can tell them a story and like, you know, so that's why I, I, uh, I stay back for people. No, absolutely. And I'll tell you something though. I'm, I'm going to come out a little slightly different way. You've had a guest on and spoken a, a slightly different way. So I, I do think that part of it is that something should shake you. Uh, but this is a job where you're com two competing interests as a cop. Your one competing interest is that you swore a pledge, a duty, to, if need be, sacrifice your life to protect your community. At the same time, you want to get home at the end of the shift. And those are your two competing interests. And in order to make those competing interests possible at the same time, we develop what we call hypervigilance. So this is the idea that I'm going to walk up on every car stop as if this guy's trying to kill me until I determine quickly, hopefully, and yeah. hopefully tactfully, tactfully that, you know, without offending the guy, um, that he's not trying to kill me. So when we walk up on a guy who's run through a red light, I don't walk up on him like, oh, maybe he's just late for dinner. I walk up on him like he's fleeing the scene of some robbery because I don't know why he ran that red light. And one of those two approaches might get me killed. So I'm going to walk up acting as though he's the worst possible scenario. And once I find out, hopefully you can dust this guy off and you can you can talk it back down, but you start off with, let me, uh, do me a favor, get your hands on that steering wheel. Why? He's just late for dinner. Why you treat me this way? Because I don't know who you are. Yeah. And, and I have this competing uh, uh, ambition, one, to protect my community, but two, to get home tonight. Mm. I got kids too, and I wanna go home. And I have to figure out how to do both of those things simultaneously. This hypervigilance that we all experience as cops is, is a killer. Yeah. And it, it really um, it messes with our communication with our wives. It messes with our, our, our uh, mental health. It messes with our uh, anxious uh, nature. 
uh, it messes with our off-duty time because it takes about 12 hours to come off that hypervigilance. It just, it just makes a mess of your life. But it is the way that we go home safely at the end of the night. And I think what part of it, too, is that as a culture, we have, be honest, let's be honest, we have moved away from a biblical view of masculinity. And we have moved toward a more gender-neutral view of humanity in which there really isn't a difference between men and women. Yep. And, and uh, the scriptures describe the female partner in your marriage as the weaker sex. That's how they're described. Well, they are physically weaker, typically, on average. Yeah. But they're also described that way because we need to protect them from things that will hurt them, not just physically. Yeah. And and what's happened is we now, and so I think what we see is that in that environment, it wouldn't surprise me a little bit at least, if men become more easily hurt. Like, in a, you can only imagine what it sounds like to my dad's generation of cops when they hear mantras like silence is violence. Okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, to that generation, it's like, are you kidding me? This is a generation that came back from Vietnam and just sucked it up and made a life for themselves. Or they crashed and burned because they couldn't make a life for themselves from all they saw in Vietnam. But those who survived it did it by by rubbing some dirt in it. And and I think that's why it's a little I think what also we are not a generation that has experienced even the the um more broad experiences of war. You know, that World War II generation, a large percentage of men saw some terrible stuff and had to learn how to live their lives afterwards. And now we are not the, the percentage of men who have to endure that kind of hardship is much lower than it was in generations earlier. Even for me, I mean, I, I grew up in that perfect sweet spot where I was not involved in a world war. So, so I think part of it is that this we have to be careful to, 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 to say, yes, some things ought to traumatize us or we're not even human. But at the same time, it, don't do this. Let's put it this way. Now, I'm going to say this and you might. Uh, take take offense to it, but I'm just going to say it. Not that you personally would take offense to it, but people who are listening might, might not like it. But I always say that in order to do the jobs that we do, we have to draw a very tight circle around the people for whom we're, we are willing to cry. So if my nephew gets shot in the forehead, I could work that case. You know why? I've drawn the circle tighter than my nephews. It's me, it's my wife, it's my kids. Basically, that's it. I could work anyone else's homicide because I might have to. But I can tell you when you get to that kid who's been killed by his father and it's brutal, if you're going to internalize that and see your own kid lying on the floor there, you are not going to be able to work that case. So what kind of people does this develop in this industry? People who are pretty much pretty calloused because I can't be traumatized by this either. Yeah. I might have another one tomorrow. I and have then to we, we are the one of the um, terms I've I read this somewhere that um, police officers are the vehicle or the vessel i can't remember if it's a vehicle or vessel through which the government views trauma or it's the government views um evil doing i, I can't even quote it now but it's it but essentially we are the we are the lens through which the, the government has to deal with crime occurring crime right. is very nasty and dangerous and not fun for most people to deal with and but we are the the lens through which we have to present that to back to the government. Well, let me so, say something. This is something that always strikes me as interesting. So I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, and I want to be conscious of my words. Um, I don't want to speak profanely. 
but you know very well that in that um, the force escalation, if you look at your levels of force you're going to use with people, that, 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 that your physical presence is the first level of force. I can walk into a room, and if you're big enough, I had partners that were 6'5", 280 pounds. When they would walk in the room, pretty much everybody would just go along with the program. They wouldn't do that for me. <laughs> Pardon me. Why? Because I'm not too, 280. Your physical presence is often the first line of defense. Then what's next? What's your words? It's what words can I use? Now, there are times in certain settings that that the, the culture now expects extreme civility from us. Yet, if I'm civil with the person I'm talking to who is not being civil, that person I'm talking to is very profane, I could say, sir, I need you to stop doing that, and likely I'm going to get in a fight. Yep. Or I could say mm -hmm. something that's a little bit more profane and direct, and he's going to go, eh, maybe I won't try this guy. Like, he he's trying to figure out, who am I? And he's using my words either against me or he's evaluating me through my words. So then I'm stuck as a Christian trying to decide, okay, so look, if words alone could prevent me from having to use the next level of, of aggression, and I don't want to use the next level, I'd much rather stop with words. But the only words that will work in this setting are words I don't even feel comfortable saying anymore. Now what do I do? And yeah. I think this is just another level of what we have to process as Christ followers, right? And I think the world has no patience. If we're on a video and we use that kind of language with somebody, and let's say it doesn't work. Nine times out of ten it does, but this time it doesn't. Well, now we're seen as the provoker the, the, you know, because we provoked this with our language. I mean, you can't win one way or the other. But often it's just calculated on our part. We're trying to figure out how can I keep this where it is right now and not let it escalate. And a lot of it is you're going to meet verbal aggression with verbal aggression. And then the guy says, okay, I'm done. Yeah. So, so this is a challenge, I think, for us as Christ followers. This is why I think some people think that we shouldn't be in the industry at all. And the um, and we're not operating in a vacuum. This is one of the reasons why I, I want to do this job is to, to actually interact with the world. Um, I've talked about this before. All my family's academics. They all, they all work in classrooms and offices, and that that's needed work. I want to stress that it's needed work. But I, I really wanted to get out in the world. And one of the consequences of that is that you your your actions matter. You can't just take them back. And so, you know, if I say something super offensive to somebody, like if I say something really racist to somebody, I can't take that back. Uh, and, you know, I'm probably gonna get fired. Um, but right. and I, I'm not going to do that. But the the consequences are that you know you you have to you consistently have to bat a thousand when you're out there dealing with the world. And you just, people you just can't do that. We're we are yes. we're not God. We're not. We can't be perfect. Um, but in that that's another um, thing that I wanted to to point out with you. You one of the things that you mentioned is that if we have a flawed view of God, then when bad things happen to us or when we encounter trauma, then we start either doubting God mm -hmm. um, or we, we we block it out and we just don't know how to deal with it. Uh, this is something that I've been reading about a lot recently. Um, so I'm working on uh, doing a full length podcast with somebody we're going to talk about the odyssey the odyssey is basically yep. the, why is how can god be a good god if there exists brutal suffering in the world and i, I don't want to get to the answer to that because i've, I've got to really i think i've i've read a, read a couple of books and i've talked to some people and you know we're not gonna be able to 100 percent put our nail on the head on the answer to that 
but one of the the aspects of that is that we we can't engage in theistic humanism and so theistic humanism is basically a belief that god himself is a human um god took on flesh when he came when you know, the second person of the trinity jesus came down to earth but we we can't apply our human expectations upon god i i believe I, th- I thoroughly believe that one of the one of the good things about a lot of the medieval era scholars is they understood that there was a lot of mystery in the world and so a lot of these things are, are mysterious and so you know we don't know why something happened but it did happen what we have to hold on to is that we as police officers interacting with the world and especially as christians we are contributing to christ's greater story knowing that he's coming back he will redeem the world and as we're here doing good things we are in a very minuscule but with our lives contributing to that greater christian story that's that has that was that began you know since the dawn of time was carried through the jews when christ came it was emancipated to all the gentiles and we continue to contribute that daily yeah absolutely i think part of this too is that we if, if we have a christian world this is why for me it was so important to determine if christianity was true it's, it, it, two things i think especially for your generation is christianity true and is it good two different questions and i think both need to be answered and they are got slightly different answers so part of this is us trying to figure out um does it offer anything that is useful if it's true look it can't be good if it's not true i mean i suppose you could find some useful delusion my dad always thinks that christianity is a useful delusion and i kind of thought that way too for a lot of years but i don't want to believe a lie and so that's why i think most cops don't want to believe lies and that we're trained to figure out what is the truth that's why every investigation is to get down to what actually happened. And so I think for us, we have such a high priority in truth, what actually happened, that and, and you're not going to stand tall during a challenge if you just think this is just your opinion of the world. If you know this is true, that even on days when it doesn't, you're not feeling it, on days when you're like wondering why God would you do this, but if you're convinced that there is a God, well, that's a much different view of the world. And I think also identity, right? So if your identity is it's you, if, if, if you're searching for your identity in the modern structure of the city of man, right, like Babel, right, there, why do they build that? To make a name for themselves, it says. And it's about identity. Well, there's a city coming, but it's a city in Revelation. It's God's city, the city of God. And so you have two ways to identify yourself. One, you're a citizen of, of the city of man, or you're a citizen of the city of God. That's your choice. And Paul says in Philippians that we are right now citizens of heaven, citizens of that city. And that's two different ways to be human, two different ways to live. It just is. If you're going to make your own identity, then get ready. You're going to be constantly working hard to prove you're better than somebody else or you're worthy. You're going to be stressed all the time. You're going to be super competitive and cynical of others who maybe got something you thought you deserved because you're constantly trying to build your own reputation, your own success in your career because you're identified that as your, as who you are. And you just it's going to change the way you act with others. It's going to change the way you love your wife, change the way you select your wife. 
It's going to change the way you you work at the job, what your what your goals are. You'll become far more selfish, far more distrusting of others, far more competitive with others, and there's no peace in that. All there is is anxiety, anxiousness. This is what happens when your identity is in the city of man. But if your identity is in the city of God, well, now you already know you can't achieve anymore. And it's not it's never been about your achievements anyway. But by the way, is the unique feature offered by Christianity. Every other worldview, you earn something through good works. You have to do something to stay saved. This is the one worldview that says, no, it could never be about that. Because the minute you do something to be saved, if your church attendance or even taking the sacraments is something that is, is salvific, well, then trust me, if you do it three times this month and somebody else does it uh, twice, you're going to feel more empowered than they are. And you're going to feel less empowered than the one that was there every week. It's competitive, and we are comparative. So I think the idea that this is offered freely is an important part of our identity. You don't have to do anything to achieve it. You have to surrender something to achieve it. And that's a completely different way of looking at the world. But and by the way, that's a that's a worldview that begins and ends in humility. And the, the next book I've written, which is called The Truth and True Crime, that book talks about the one attribute of human flourishing that is hidden. It's in every study, though. They do studies now of what it contributes to human flourishing, and the academic uh, secular studies demonstrate that that one attribute will improve your grades, improve your income level, improve your mental health, your physical health. You'll live longer, have deeper relationships, be a better employer, a better employee. It's humility, and that's not Amen. something you can ever achieve. You can't pursue humility because the pursuit becomes prideful. Mm -hmm. Humility is something that's realized. It's something you have to surrender to. When you properly assess who you are before a holy God, and your identity in Christ should do that for you because you know this is not a position of authority. My position in Christ is like Isaiah standing before the throne of God. It knocks you to your knees. You suddenly realize, don't even look at me. I'm not even worthy to have you look at me. Yeah. Well, when you're in that position, you are just a different person. You're a different father. You're a different husband, different employee. Uh, one of the great quotes from C.S. Lewis is, humility is not thinking less about yourself. No, it is it's, not it's thinking, not thinking less, less of yourself. It's about thinking about yourself less. Yes, and I'll tell yeah. you, and I've heard that quote, and I think he's half, only half right on that. And I'll tell you why. Because Scripture says you are to think less of yourselves than others, not to think less about yourself. But Scripture tells us it's both. It's not an either or. It's number one, stop thinking so much about yourself. And number two, realize you're not who you think you are. You're not all that great. And that's helpful because if my identity is dependent on my success at work, like I'm the top detective, I've got more arrests, blah, 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 blah. At some point, somebody's going to succeed, uh, surpass that. It's just going to happen. And there's always going to be a better version of you out there. That's why your identity can't be in that stuff because you're just going to always suffer from comparison. Yeah. And it's Amen. stressful, right? So, yeah. and we do that at work all the time. We keep stats. And how many self-initiated field activity stats? How yep. many self-initiated felonies arrest did you make? I mean, this is ridiculous. Yeah. How many people you put in federal prison? Yeah. And, yeah. and so we do this. Why? Because we're, we're constantly saying, I'm worthy. I'm worthy. I'm worthy. I'm worthy. And we're trying to prove it to ourselves and to, to others. Promote and me. We, right. Right. And if <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, exactly. And so if we can finally just get comfortable with the fact that, that, that God sees you as worthy, he's willing to die for you right now. And if your identity is in him, what that means is, and how I usually put it with the guys I'm working with in Alaska, is that you know we have a tendency to, to want guidance, but we want to be in charge, really. 
So if you've ever done this where like someone will tell you how to get there, like, you know, you'd rather just take, take the information, okay, I know how to get there. And you go, you might even get lost trying, but at least you're in control of the car. But yep. if you would just let the guy sit in the car next to you, you wouldn't have to memorize the directions. When you get to the next turn, he'll tell you to turn and you'll get there because this guy's been there before and he's now not giving you guidance that you pridefully want to get him out of the car and take, but he's actually acting as the guide. So what happens is we are not willing usually to let God, we'll take guidance from God, but we aren't really usually willing to let God be the guide. Like, yeah. I don't want you in the car with me. We want control of the car. So a yeah, lot of what we're doing in the job is really a reflection of the fact that we're so prideful. We will not submit ourselves in humility to the God of the universe. Because we're used to being the one where the buck yeah, stopped at. That's right. right. Um, let me grab a book. I'm actually going to quote something. Uh, yeah. I want to make sure I get it right. Yeah, no problem. I'm going to keep the audience busy while you're doing that. I'm going to make fun of you and, and talk trash about, Oh, too bad. You're already back. Dang. I was, I was, tr I was trying to talk trash about you while you were gone. I couldn't oh, get geez. anything off before you got back to the microphone. Dang it. Um, okay. So you, you brought up one of the, the second question for my generation is that is Christianity mm -hmm. good? Yeah. Um, or is the church good? What? So one of the things that I, a little bit of background about me um, for a while was a hardcore utilitarian or rationalist. So I, I believe that, you know, modernism was good. We should, that the Renaissance and the enlightenment especially brought about good changes in the world. Go down this, this, you know, full rabbit hole of, um, of rationalism. And that's what your old belief was. Yes, yeah, yes, and right. I'm, I'm way against that now. I'm, I'm, you know, very, very much believe that we should all pursue Christ, full stop. The one of the arguments that I would use is that the church was, or rather, Rome. So, like, Rome was the Rome and Greece were these great laboratories of academia right so these good ideas of modernism we still use today are that came from from greece and rome went away during the middle ages and then came back during the renaissance and haven't left since and that we should continue to to pursue these things and i um i realized a while back that these ideas the good ideas of this world that the church is the ultimate thing that changed the world. The right. Christ coming down on the cross and the founding of, of his church changed the world. Yes. If we, and, how, and how I typically say it is that Christ initiated a worldview that had more impact on literature, art, music, education, science, and even other uh, theistic worldviews than any other historical figure. Mm-hmm. So his impact is, if you love the arts, you can thank Jesus for being the most drawn, sculpted, etched, painted figure in the history of historical characters. There is no other historical figure who's been more imaged than Jesus of Nazareth. And not only that, the top artists in every genre of, of art history have all imaged him. This can't be said of anybody else in history. Music, we, we are a singing worldview. We've had more impact on music, the creation of musical instruments, minor scales, major scales, musical notation, harmony. All of these are inventions of Christians who are creating music for the church primarily. What other worldview has somebody who is singing to a live audience every Sunday? That's called Christianity. That's the local church. 
So it's not just the arts, though, that all the scientists in the scientific revolution dominantly were Christ followers because Jesus introduces a worldview that opened up the sciences. And I wrote a book on this called Person of Interest. And in there, I'll, I give you seven igniters, seven reasons why the Christian worldview ignited the sciences. As a matter of fact, the top 10 universities, no one has contributed more to, to universities than Christianity or to education. Why? Because Jesus didn't come to make converts. The Great Commission is about making disciples, teaching them everything that I have taught you. It's a teaching worldview. The top 10 universities in the world today were all planted by Christians. Christians have founded more universities than all other groups combined times 10. I have a list of these in, in, uh, in Person of Interest. I just think in the end, we have underestimated the impact that Jesus has. An impact that's not just, well, you know, so what? Well, it turns out everything that you think is beautiful, everything you think is good, art, literature, music, science, education, those are all grounded as you know them today by Jesus of Nazareth and his followers, given that worldview that he established. So I wrote that book, not to show, no, I, do I think it's evidence of God, of, of, of um, Christianity being true? Yeah, I do. I'll tell you why. You can't imagine a fictional character in the history of fictional characters that has impacted literature, art, music, education, science, and world religions like Jesus of Nazareth. And if you can't imagine there's a fictional character out there, it's a reasonable inference that Jesus is something other than a fictional character. But I don't think you can imagine another real human who's had the impact on the things that I used to love as an atheist, literature, art, music, education, science, and world religions. No one has had an impact like Jesus. So it's reasonable to infer that he's not a human. In other words, of the three options, man, myth, or Messiah, only the third best explains the impact that Jesus had on culture. So I think that his impact is an evidence of sorts. It's part of the cumulative case for Christianity. But more importantly, if nothing else, it's evidence that Christianity still matters, that Jesus still matters, because the things that matter to non-believers are all Jesus-dependent. So I think in the end, that's why I, I think that we have to be able to make it. If anyone's going to make this case, it's going to be case makers. So if you're a cop listening to this or you're a detective listening to this, why is it we are so much, uh, it's so much easier. I don't know what your sports team is. I mean, is it, is it the Titans? Is it, are you a Tennessee fan or? No, I'm, I'm, I'm originally from Georgia. So I'm, I'm Georgia all the way for all my stuff, but. So, uh, so you're like a Falcons fan. Is that what you are? Well, okay. So. Come on now. Not, not, not NFL. I'm only really college football. So, oh, uh, college football. Okay. So, so what, yeah, we're, so we're you're, in South. So, well, that's why you're saying that now because you got the, the world champion, two time world yeah, champion, Bulldogs. Bulldogs. Okay. So, the yeah. point is, I bet you can make a case, and most of us who are sports fans, especially as guys, especially as cops, we could talk about sports with anyone in the car, anyone we're working with that night. We could talk for hours and make a decent case for why your team is better than their team. Uh, we're, we're trash talking right now, and my phone is blowing up on fantasy football because today is the waiver day, right? So we're all tr talking trash. Well, why is it we are more passionate and more uh, equipped to talk trash about football than we are to talk the truth about Christianity? We are. You know it. I know it. There are yep. things that animate us, and they don't happen to be God usually. They happen to be the idols that we have here on, on planet Earth one of which is our sports teams. So I just think in the end, that stuff's not going to make your day any easier as a cop, that, that your, your sports affiliations are not going to change your life. But if you have your identity in Christ, your shift will be different tomorrow.
your shift will feel different. You'll work that shift differently. You'll interact with people differently. You'll have different set of expectations, therefore a different set of responses to what happens to you. Everything changes once you change your identity. Christianity is is the is the ultimate great worldview. Um, it it is the so as I was looking for this quote, I found another really good one. Compares some of the the the, uh, the historical worldviews, and that is so. You just went on about how the, the you know the physical how we can see today how Jesus is the great person who changed the world. One of the the things that I I didn't really I didn't really know this because I, I don't think we do a good job teaching it in today's worldview or in today's world in the church creates a new world. It creates a, a new way to, to look at the world. And so what I mean by that is that a lot of people, uh, as I was saying with you know Greece and Rome, would say that the, the East was completely different from the West. And the West is where we had democracy, freedom, X, Y, and Z. And these great ideas that built the West grew up here. And then these ideas didn't exist in the East. Well, Kind of uh, the, the the issue is that in the West before Christ we had the same amount of ancestral worship we had the same amount of Pythagoras was a, a big reincarnation guy he was all about how uh, we are re- like we would all become reincarnate well that that idea also exists in in Hinduism there was people that were trying to ascend from the world trying to disconnect like Buddha, like Siddhartha. Uh, does, do these ideas um, about either disconnect from the world or that all the world's all connected, they existed in ancient times in both the East and the West. And Christianity is a thing that changes it. Oh, well, I'm not going to be able to find this quote here. Um, no, but, no worries. Yeah. But, the, but one thing's for sure, there's nothing new under the sun. We know that. And there's not like we've got a set of new ideas. What, what the question is, which of these ideas is the best inference from evidence and which of these ideas contributes, if it is true, it ought to contribute to human flourishing. Look, in the end, we are image bearers. We are image bearers of God, according to Christianity. Therefore, we ought to be able to find some evidence of this. And and if, if and, and this is why, and that's why, look, does the Bible describe the world the way it really is? That's the question. Does it describe humans the way we really are? If it does, there, that's a good evidence to, to, to actually trust what it's saying. It could be authoritative, but more importantly, does the Bible describe an event in the first century that really occurred? It's the resurrection. It all comes down to the resurrection. You can look at all the other you know, abilities that the Christian worldview has to generate art or literature. You could say, what is the ability the Christian worldview has to describe evil, to address evil? In the end, if its description of the resurrection is not true, then none of this matters. It all comes down to one central claim. Did the resurrection occur? If so, there is a being out there known as Jesus that lived on both sides of that line we call death Mm. and can tell us something about both sides. And that authoritative position he would hold would be the only one like it. So he would uniquely have a perspective that no other human teacher like Buddha or anyone else would have, Baha'u'llah, you know, Muhammad, whoever you want to say, his view would be unique. And so we have to ask that question as case makers first. And this is why I even wrote a book about it, because I wanted, that was a question I had to answer for me. Did this guy rise from the grave? If so, I'm going to listen to him. 
So in the end, that really that makes it simple. Another thing too, you and I both know cops like it simple. I like it simple. Yeah. I don't. I don't. If I have to investigate forty claims, I'm going to be like overwhelmed by it. But it turns out you don't. You have to investigate one claim. Did Jesus rise from the grave? If so, that will change things. Now, it is harder, I will tell you, for you than it is for me. And here's why. You're raised in the Bible Belt. You were raised someplace where there were a large number of Christians who had a lot of traditions that came out of their, their church uh, uh, culture that I always say it's easier for me to, to, to make a case for the truth to people who don't know Jesus than it is to people who think they do. The reality of it is, is that we have to kind of get back to what's true. And I want the most primitive version of what's true. I was ignorant of all church traditions. I couldn't tell you what denominations there were and what the differences were between these denominations. I didn't know one from the other. I never paid attention to it. Not my concern. I was unchurched, completely unchurched. I think that was an advantage for me because I didn't have to carry along with me some notion of Jesus that I held prior to meeting Jesus for the first time. And I think in the end, what our traditions sometimes do is they, they disable us. So I know we don't have a lot of time left on this, but I wanted to say yeah. that at least that one thing is that we have to take a fresh look with new eyes at the person of Jesus. And I would suggest all of you to hold every religious tradition at an arm's length. History is important and it informs our process for sure. At the same time, what's really important is, I mean, I look at, when I look at how should we behave as Christians, it's in there. It's in all the letters. It's also in the book of Acts. And as you're experiencing your life as a Christian, if you can't locate it somewhere in the New Testament or in the book of Acts, then start to reconfigure your life to live a life of surrendered life to Jesus that you would find in the book of Acts and in the New Testament. And you don't have to get caught up with traditions. So if you've had a bad experience with Baptists or with Lutherans or with Methodists or whatever it is your bad experiences with, I get it. That's not what we're asking you to join. We're asking you to take a fresh look at Jesus. Did he rise from the grave? And then you can, if you are discerning enough, like, do you trust your friend's view of your favorite sports team? No, you've made that case for yourself. You've gathered that together. You're looking at your fantasy sports team. You built that special team on your own. Well, it turns out you could have your own relationship with Christ. It's completely guided. It's got the parameters, the, 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 the fences that are called the New Testament. They keep it within boundaries. No. But in the end, I want to be an, a scholar, like all of us as cops, Here's what happens, dude. At your age, uh, we are form our identity based on our toughness, our athletic prowess, our sharpshooting, all the stuff that yep. makes a good cop a good cop. When you get into your later part of your career, it's not based on any of that because you can now run a lot faster than me. You can chase a guy a lot further than I can chase him. The reality of it is now I have to have what comes to this age, and this is wisdom. So I want all of you listening to this to have wisdom. Well, wisdom is something you get from Scripture because wisdom, when it's ancient and when it's grounded in transcendent moral truths, that's, that's really trustworthy wisdom. Yeah. So if you're going to master something, don't master your penal code. Don't master your, your, your MOU. Don't master – instead, how about mastering the book, the book that is God's Word? And if you have that, if you've mastered that, you'll be a source of wisdom in your agency. And, and, and wisdom is, when it's grounded in ancient wisdom that has stood the test of time and the unchanging nature of God and in the unchanging nature of who we are created as biological image bearers, 
Because reality of it is culture can change. You're still the same biological being that God created. And, and, and if you want to know what your purpose is, if I hold up a widget and say, what is this for? And you don't know. Well, you could say, what's the brand? And you could Google it. And once you find the manufacturer's page, you can figure out what it's for. It turns out the surest way to know the purpose of something is to return to the manufacturer and see what he built it for. Mm -hmm. Same is true for us. You wonder what your purpose is on the job? Return to the manufacturer and you'll figure it out. Yeah, we are once again, this is something we've we've hit over and over is that we are we are little images or we are icons of Christ. We're not Christ, <laughs> but we are um but we have to try to you know bear his image. And how you do that is not to work harder. It turns <laughs> out this is the one worldview that says that if you adopt it and you could become a believer. Other worlds will say, now God is going to fight for your battles. God's alongside you. This is a worldview that says that once you become a believer, God is inside you. The Spirit of God now resides in you. You are now the temple of God. Well, think about that. So what that means is I don't need to try harder to be Christ-like. He's in me. I need to surrender harder. I need to surrender to what I know is true. Stop trying to do it on your own power. That's my struggle. Is that I keep on thinking, well, okay, I got to do more. I got to do these five things. I got to do these disciplines. I got to do, 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 do. That's what you do if Christ, if the God you worship is not residing in you. You're trying to attain, you're trying to reach him. If the God you worship is in you, you're simply trying to get transparent and visible yeah. so that he yeah. can be seen in you. Yeah. And that's where I struggle is I'm still trying to be in control. And folks, that is a game that is just ripe for trauma yeah. because you're going to fail. Mm -hmm. And how you live with failure then becomes how you move forward tomorrow. Yeah. So yeah. anyway. Yeah, the uh, you know some of the, the some of the sacraments that, you know, we practice and whether it be in one tradition or the other are, are meant to form you to do that. And that's a and a confession of sin. Obviously, you know, you stand in front of somebody else if you're in my tradition, but um, if you're in, you know, whatever you, and you actually articulate that you've messed up, right. That you have to surrender that out marriage you every day over and over. I've been married, um, almost four years. And so it's, you know, every day it's, you have to give it yourself. Right. Um, well, we're getting close to the top of the hour here. Um, I was wondering if you could give a couple things for us. The first one is we want to contact you or, uh, find out more about you. What, what are a couple resources that we can use? I mean, and talk about your new book that you've got coming out. Um, and the last one is, do you have any parting advice for police officers or listeners of the show? Okay. Yes. Uh, pretty, uh, pretty quick here. Uh, you can find me at coldcasechristianity.com. Coldcasechristianity.com. Now we have a website with that. That's basically Christianity from a detective's perspective, but we have a website that is detective work from a Christian perspective. And that's called the thin blue life, the thin blue So it's kind of the opposite of these two things. And we talk a lot about police stuff. One post a week on the thin blue I'll be posting this podcast with you there. Right, and you. we talk, we post three times a week at coldcasechristianity.com. And if you go to coldcasechristianitybook.com, you'll see, the free offer we're making for anyone who purchases the book. I think that we as case makers should be case makers for Christ if we're Christians. And we have a course that we offer for free, 30 video sessions that you can take in your own privacy, your own home, that'll help you make a case for Christianity. And actually you'll be writing your own little booklet 
as a part of that process so that you can then return to your notes to make that case going forward. But my point is, that's all free if you buy the book. I want us to become really good Christian case makers. Now, that's what I would say to you as you leave. Look, it turns out that all of your diligence, your due diligence, your hypervigilance, all of your training is not going to impact you or your partners as much as surrendering yourself to the will of God, surrendering yourself as a Christian. So we can prioritize a lot of stuff. And we can talk about these, and they're important to talk about. It's important to talk about training. What we expect of our partners, if we get into a mess tonight, here's what I expect you to do. At the same time, if we don't have the same worldview, um, we, we can't even grow as partners in the car together. So if you're going to, to talk to your partner about something in the next month, find out where they stand spiritually and see if you can help them. See if you can introduce them to the king because life changes and you'll suffer trauma differently. You will remain sane if you have surrendered your life to the king. So that's my advice to all of you. Mr. Wallace, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Remember, if you have any questions, comments, feel free to email remainingsanepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's remainingsanepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at remainingsanepc. Please remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Have a blessed rest of your day.